welcome to Twill, the Beacon Health Law, the occasional podcast of record for the discussion of health law and policy. This episode was recorded on August 1st, 2019. I'm Nicholas Terry, a professor of law at Indiana University in Indianapolis. This episode was recorded at the 2019 meeting of the Southeastern Association of Law Schools during a panel reviewing the year in healthcare financing. In this episode, I take a look at state regulation of health insurance. First, from the perspective of states playing defense and shoring up their own laws in case the ACA disappears. And second, how some are playing offense, actually seeking to improve upon the ACA baseline. As always, let me express my gratitude to Katie Keith on the Health Affairs blog, the brief riders at the Commonwealth Fund, and everyone at Kaiser Health News, without whom I wouldn't know much about any of this. I want to talk a little bit about uh, how states, state policymakers and legislators are reacting to what I guess we would now call Trump care after a couple of years of experience. This isn't the first time that we have done this. When we were last here, we had the president saying that Obamacare is finished. It's dead. It's gone. You shouldn't even mention it. There is no such thing as Obamacare anymore. It's, and I said this years ago, it's a concept that couldn't have worked. Around the time that we met here a year ago, I guess we were probably buying into Jonathan Oberlander's uh, comment in the New England Journal that, quote, the AACA is stuck in purgatory beyond comprehensive repeal, but subject to a war of retrition that jeopardizes its gains. Shortly thereafter, as seals broke up, we started going into pre-election mode, and it became increasingly clear that aspects of healthcare, particularly pre-existing conditions issues, were becoming important uh, to the electorate. And Julie Rovner noting ensuring that people with pre-existing health conditions can get and keep health insurance is the most popular part of the ACA, and it's also become a flashpoint in this fall's midterm campaigns across the country. So exactly where are we today? The existential threat is real and ongoing, albeit now in the courtroom of the Fifth Circuit, not on the Hill. Secondly, congressional kabuki theater continues, but now I think with the script somewhat inverted. Uh, Instead of symbolic House repeal bills that President Obama would veto, we now have symbolic House ACA support bills that the Senate won't take up. The Trump administration continues, but arguably at a reduced rate, to enable destabilizing of state health plans, but generally has been frustrated by successful litigation, cutting back on the uh, types of proposals that the Trump administration has made. Marketplace enrollments are in a relatively slow decline, with the number of uninsureds actually rising slightly faster than that decline, in part because of uh, declines in Medicaid enrollment, uh, but also in part because you have people leaving plans that don't have premium assistance. So you have a a slightly accelerated decline that's larger than the decline in the marketplace in Rome. Uh, State defensive legislation, which I'm going to be spending most of my time on today, continues. But again, I think at a slightly reduced rate as the congressional existential threat has reduced. And very blue states are actually moving into what I would describe as an offensive mode, trying to improve healthcare financial 
financing and delivery above the ACA baseline. So uh, very quickly, Professor Weeks has handled this uh, so brilliantly uh, in her work today. Uh, Let's talk about the existential attack. The Texas case before Judge O'Connor basically said that post the uh, Tax Cuts and Jobs Act and zeroing of the individual mandate, the individual mandate was unconstitutional, no longer protected by uh, uh, tax, uh, the tax exception. Uh, It fell under the Commerce Clause, as we'd seen in FIB, NFIB, and it was not severable from the remainder of the ACA. In February 2019, the Fifth Circuit allows the House of Representatives to intervene. We also got the very strange, well, what's strange these days, statement or the letter from uh, the Trump administration to the appeals court, quote, we are not urging that any portion of the district court's judgment be reversed, thus abandoning the severability argument. And that, I think, was about as sort of shocking to the tradition of DOJ as back in June of 2018, when the DOJ elected not to defend the constitutionality of a properly passed U.S. statute. Oral arguments, uh, as you know, were on July 8th. The Fifth Circuit typically issues opinions two months later. So look for the second week of the semester uh, when you have to throw away your syllabus and and rewrite it. If it does go down, uh, it will be stayed, of course, until the Supreme Court. But that should mean that it will be on the Supreme Court docket around the time of the 2020 election. Maybe that will stimulate a similar kind of uh, health-driven swing in the electorate as we saw in 2018. I've guessed wrong on every single constitutional, major constitutional (laughs) challenge uh, or administrative law challenge to the ACA. If you do want to uh, work with your students, uh, there are uh, several different answers that can fall out of uh, the case, uh, including some interesting standing issues, whether there's a live case or controversy, whether the individual mandate is severable, uh, and so on and so forth. I will not issue my own opinion, but allow you to examine your own tea leaves at leisure. So the uh, the sabotage playbook that uh, I talked about last year is essentially an attack on all three legs of the ACA's three-legged stool. The shared responsibility leg has been severed. Uh, that's the individual mandate, and it's zeroing out. And there has been a somewhat of a sort of... Uh, Uh, partial victory in the administration's attack on the green leg, the government responsibilities, uh, in that we've uh, we've seen cost-sharing reductions uh, taken out. We've seen some of the market stabilization pieces taken out uh, and so on. Uh, But the carrier responsibilities, customer-facing pieces, if you like, of the ACA, guaranteed issue, community rating, essential health benefits, and so on, are alive and well as we speak, not in the Fifth Circuit. So the sabotage playbook was to destroy the three-legged stool. And as I've mentioned, we've got rid of the mandate. CSRs are gone. And then the more nuanced sabotage plan, I think, was to destabilize risk pools, to chip away at essential health benefits, create process impediments to marketplace signups by, for example, reducing marketing, deprecating uh, outreach and navigators, marketing, and of course, making sure the computers were down for maintenance on Sundays when people could actually have time to sign up. Take down linking information to the ACA 
from other federal government uh, websites and so on. The other question was whether uh, you could actually, or other tactic was to actually reduce exchange enrollment. So for example, the 2020 final payment notice that we now have increases the premium adjustment percentage, therefore reducing actuarial value and increasing required contribution from the subsidy eligible cohort, which might have uh, an effect of of, uh, driving down enrollment because of cost uh, and contribution. Though, to be fair, let the record show that when it comes to nibbling away at the ACA, it was the House of Representatives just recently democratically controlled, but almost unanimously voted to take out the Cadillac tax. I know it's never been implemented. I know it's a silly name that should never have been given to it, but there there are good economic reasons for having that Cadillac tax and uh, to see the House uh, just so easily uh, voted down uh, was somewhat disappointing. So let's focus in a little bit on the tactic of destabilizing risk pools. The first that I'll talk about are the so-called short-term limited duration insurance Trump administration regulation. Under the ACA, there was like a three-month maximum for these short-term STLDs. They're now allowed to last as long as 364 days, but you can renew them three three times. So these short-term plans now don't look so short-term. Uh, anymore. So why do we care about these? I mean, they were emergency sort of things that we had in place. It seemed like a good idea. Well, they lack essential health benefits. The insurers can impose annual uh, or lifetime caps on claims, and there are no guaranteed issue uh, protections. So the impact or the potential impact is to have negative effect on individual and group market risk pools. Uh, in particular, uh, these are thought to be likely to suck out you know, that that core group uh, that we need to improve the, the, the health of the risk pools, uh, which are the young and the healthy. The rules, like everything else that has been ejected from the, the mouth of this administration, has been challenged in the courts in Association for Community Affiliated Plans against the Treasury, which was filed in the D.C. Uh, District Court in 2018. The argument was that 364 days, particularly when multiplied by three was inconsistent with the phrase short term and were inconsistent with the idea of limited duration, not only under the ACA, but also under uh, the previous HIPAA uh, law. There was also, of course, a challenge, as always is the case in the last few years, as to a complete lack of transparency in rulemaking and so uh, violations of the uh, APA. Uh, Plaintiffs argue, quote, like any law, the ACA can be repealed by act of Congress, but Congress has repeatedly rejected attempts to repeal the ACA. Now, with the issuance of the STLD rule, the department seek to do by executive fiat what could not be accomplished through the required constitutional process. This just got dismissed with the district court adopting every second year law student, health law student's favorite idea, Chevron deference. So if you want a new case on Chevron deference, and it's actually an amazingly clear application of Chevron deference, unlike a certain Supreme Court case that we won't uh, go back over. This Association of Community Affiliated Plans is the one to look at. Of course, the answer they came up with might not uh, sit with you as well. One of the House Democrat bills that's sitting out there uh, uh, has the uh, lovely title of, quote, to provide that the rule entitled short-term limited duration insurance shall have no force or effect. 
we have not seen that bill move forward, uh, but it is one of the many uh, House bills that are out there. Second attempt to destabilize the risk pools has been through association health plans, the slightly easier acronym AHP. AHPs predated the ACA uh, and had a bucket load of dubious history, including fraud, regulatory avoidance because of federal state gaps, and the ACA basically uh, brings them to heel, requiring compliance with insurance regulations such as EHBs. However, there was an ACA exception to that, which applied to small businesses with a common interest that work together as a virtual entity to buy health insurance. This tiny, tiny, tiny little doorway of an ACA exception was spotted by the Trump administration that then proceeded to drive a semi through it. The final rule that was issued allows far more groups to join together to form associations. For example, a whole chamber of commerce, or really we have no idea. So clearly, again, we have the potential for negative impact on individual and group market risk pools. Because the final rule changes the ERISA definition of employer, it moves otherwise exchange and individual persons into employer-covered legal space where there isn't actually the the legal requirement of EHBs. You're following along? It's not, it's not, it's not simple. Well, it probably is to you. So what's the take-up rate? Well, we think there are about 30 to 35 plans. There doesn't seem to be a big take-up. There seems to be more uh, talk about it. It's, It's sort of the classic teenage sex thing. There are more people talking about AHPs than are actually uh, entering into them. And at least the evidence we have at the moment is that the ACA uh, marketplaces are relatively stable, suggesting that both the short-term plans and the AHPs are having little effect. Uh, The AHPs are still under challenge, and the the challenge has been more readily accepted by the courts. Uh, 11 states and D.C. sued the Trump administration, increasing the risk of fraud and harm to consumers, requiring states to redirect significant enforcement resources to curb those risks, etc., etc., etc. Judge Bates in the D.C. District Court held the rule that was unlawful. It had unreasonably expanded the legal definition of employer and employee for ERISA purposes. And the department's interpretation of the word employer is, quote, clearly an end run around the ACA. There has been, nevertheless, a series of DOL guidances dealing with pre and post rule and pre and post Bates decisions as to enrollment, enforcement, and so on. And the administration in April filed appeal to the circuit, DC circuit, arguing that it's within the interpretation of federal law and the agency had taken careful steps to ensure that uh, this new rule would not lead to abuses. We'll talk a little bit later about how states are already using their existing state insurance laws to close down these AHPs as fast as anyone can imagine them growing up. Next up, oh, HRAs. Who knew what an HRA was? HRAs are a different animal. So you know that HSAs, health spending accounts, are used to pay for healthcare and are supplied by employers. HRAs are funds supplied by employers in a similar manner, but not to pay for health care, but to pay for health insurance. Their genesis seems to have been in the, in the Cures Act in 2016, which allowed sort of little mini HRAs called small firms. But now we have a new final rule 
the Health Reimbursement Arrangements, HRA, for those of you following along, and other account-based group health plans. Now all firms can offer employees pre-tax dollars to buy ACA-compliant health insurance on the individual market. But if the employer has a high-risk pool, for example, cancer patients, women of childbearing age, then it's quite likely to uh, want to dump these cohorts from group to individual, which might cause individual market increases. How popular is this going to be? There is a part of me that welcomes them, because here we have an instance of the decoupling of employment from health insurance. Instead of the employer buying the health insurance, the employer, kind of like in a national health insurance country plan, is providing money to purchase insurance. So that decoupling is kind of attractive and gets us away from uh, the path-dependent mess that we've been in since the end of the Second World War. But I think there are all sorts of uh, questions about what employers will do with regard to these payments uh, if we have uh, health insurance, inflation, and so on and so forth. I do recommend an incredibly stiff drink if you're going to try and read these rules. they, They really are quite complicated. So, while attacks on the ACA have led to a lot of uh, court actions, but meanwhile, the states have been subtly moving to try and sort of shore up the stool, to put back legs on the stool or to strengthen aspects of the three-legged stool. Uh, generally, they've tried to protect risk pools by bringing in their own individual mandates and by whacking away at these skimpy plans, short-term limited duration plans, associated health plans and so on. And then the second sort of theme has been protecting benefits. So trying to shore up in some way or another essential health benefits and more specifically across all types of of plan, uh, the contraceptive mandate. Prohibiting annual lifetime limits, community rating, non-medical underwriting, protecting essential health benefits, guaranteed issue, maximum out-of-pocket limits, non-discrimination provisions, pre-existing condition uh, prohibitions, preventive services without cost sharing and so on. It should read just like uh, subsets of your private insurance uh, syllabus, right? Now, a few states have gone all in. So states like Maine, New Mexico, Washington have basically said, yeah, we'll take the whole lot. We're basically going to create a mini ACA. Most states, however, are sort of cherry picking bits and pieces. So for example, Nevada just passed a pre-existing prohibition. The individual mandate Well, we now have statutory individual mandates in the District of Columbia, New Jersey, and Vermont, plus, of course, Massachusetts that has had one without any problems now for uh, over a decade. It looked this year like Connecticut, Hawaii, Maryland, and Washington were going to join them. The Maryland health bill originally included a mandate, but it was dropped during the legislative process. The mandate failed to pass in Hawaii. It was withdrawn from the Connecticut bill when the insurers who are resident in Connecticut got upset with the uh, legislative process and Washington and Vermont uh, sort of downgraded the mandate to a study about the feasibility of a mandate. Seems like a very legislative sort of thing to do, doesn't it? In California, two bills have uh, working their way through the legislature. Um, uh, Governor Newsom is promoting them. Quote, California needs to stabilize a health insurance market that has been that has suffered a kneecapping by the Trump administration. The 
question I think that is out there for you to discuss as a matter of policy with your student is how important is the individual mandate? The toll in marketplace enrollments has been noticeable, but it hasn't been the disaster that was predicted even by some government agencies. The increases in cost seem to have stabilized, insurers are making profits, and the chances of a death spiral seem reduced. Uh, I think now the question is less about an immediate death spiral and the extent to which some of these Trump administration uh, moves will create a sort of a death by a thousand cuts rather than by one um, sudden spiral down. Uh, Prohibitions on skimpy plans, on short-term so on. Uh, New Jersey has prohibited them since 1993. Uh, D.C. California, Hawaii, Illinois, Oregon, and Washington uh, joined last year. Uh, Maryland, I missed last year, uh, clarified the definition of short-term limited duration plans by saying they have to be short, which I thought was great. This year, D.C. has prohibited skimpy plans. Colorado, Delaware, Washington, and New Mexico, by rule, Vermont, by statute, have uh, also defined short-term plans, renewable, limited to three months. The California Senate bill, which the governor likes, bars individuals from AHPs, which the bill author described as junk insurance. Remember that uh, we live in at least two Americas, and Florida has, uh, by Senate Bill uh, 322 in May of this year, specifically allowed short-term limited duration plans and AHPs. What about market stabilization? Well, as you know, the three R's are in a a draw, and we're replaying uh, one of the games. Reinsurance is gone. That was always going to be temporary. Uh, Risk adjustment is back with us, even though we thought this time last year it was going away, but apparently that was a blip, and someone hadn't read a memo at the Humphrey Building. And we're not entirely sure about risk corridors. The risk corridor litigation is the one to watch. Main community health options, $12 billion contractual claim, was defended on the basis that the monies were never appropriated. You know the story of that. The important uh, add to that story is that on the 24th of June of this year, the Supreme Court granted cert on that issue. The best chance we thought we would have for market stabilization was under uh, a Murray-Alexander plan in the Senate and this was uh, before the appeal and replace failed. And after all of that, the toxicity in the Senate meant that they just abandoned uh, looking at that. They've now come back with a lower healthcare cost act, which, as you know, has the price question and cost questions in it, which is, of course, now being uh, negotiated with the uh, pharmaceutical companies uh, so as to remove all the good stuff. Bizarrely, in a meeting reportedly at the White House, uh, Senator uh, Patty Murray was asked by President Trump, why she hadn't resumed efforts to find a bipartisan deal to shore up Obamacare. It must have been one of those great cocktail parties to which she replied, but I was told that if we had gone through with that, you would have vetoed it. To which he said, of course I wouldn't. Okay. State reinsurance plans are still being added and and remain important. Last year, Alaska, Minnesota, Maryland, Wisconsin, Maine, New Hampshire, Oregon, New Jersey. This year, Colorado, North Dakota have added in. Uh, The Minnesota Premium Security Plan, its reinsurance plan, uh, was renewed. It didn't even need new monies for it because it was was, uh, fully solvent. Typically, these are being funded by through 1332 waivers. And you need 
need a waiver because you need the state to receive federal pass-through funding in the amount of the savings that would be generated from the resulting reduction in premium tax credits. And that's how they're uh, funding these things. CSRs and silver loading. The CBO estimated that terminating CSR payments, uh, cost reduction, cost savings reduction payments, would increase premiums by 20% and increase the federal deficit on net by about $194 billion. However, because the insurers engaged in silver loading, uh, which means that they put all their increases into the silver plans, which had the maximum subsidies, that had the effect of moving those costs from the insureds back to the federal government, which was the thing that had stopped making the CSR payments and now they're paying more. So silver plans, unfortunately, now are out of reach, likely for anyone who doesn't get a subsidy. But because of the numbers of persons who are getting much better subsidies, essentially, from these, uh, progressives generally now are not in favor of uh, returning to CSRs, which is another of these great ironies in this little Game of Thrones that we're all playing. CMS's proposed payment notice of 2020 allows loading for 2020, but suggests regulating them out if Congress doesn't fix the subsidies. Uh, insurers are still bringing CSR claims, by the way, and there are a ton of them, and I think they've all won so far, all of the CSR claims. So exactly why the administration is bothering to do that, I'm not entirely sure. I've mentioned already the slow decline in uh, marketplace enrollments, but you can at least make something of a case that we're looking at more stable marketplace uh, markets now. Insurers are making money for the first time since the marketplaces were established in 2014. Uh, premiums for the popular benchmark plans dipped by 1.5% in 39 states. Arguably, insurers had overpriced, right, because of the uncertainty, and now it began to level out as they adjusted. Gross margins increased, particularly for the blues. Some proposed increases for 2020 are very low. For example, less than a dollar in Washington. There is also a proposal out there in the in the 2020 payment notice to actually decrease the some of the costs charged to the marketplaces which is you know which could bring down overhead which might uh, further uh, decrease costs. Essential benefits, you know the story here, it's section 1302 threatened clearly by repeal and replace and now the uh, by uh, the Texas case. States have moved to codify two things here, uh, either uh, essential health benefits themselves or to codify the underlying benchmark process so that can't get impacted by uh, the administration. There has been liberalization on the benchmark front, so the 2019 final uh, rule and payment notice allowed states to opt for uh, either keep their own benchmark, two adopt a new one, or three adopt another state's benchmark, or replace an EHB category with another state's benchmark. And I think people were getting kind of worried that that was going to lead to a sort of race to the bottom, if you like. You know, who's got the worst EHB? Let's let's benchmark to that. In fact, only Illinois made any use of that. And that was not for any of these. It was to, to increase uh, access to opioids. Little change in the 2020 rule, suggesting they're not going to mess with that too soon. In fact, uh, they've allowed uh, coverage of Medicaid-assisted treatment for uh, opioids uh, and so on. There is some change change coming to the out-of-pocket limits, which again may have a subtle impact on, on affordability of uh, these. Contraceptive coverage. Oh, we already know so much. Um, the continued fallout from Hobby Lobby, Wheaton, Zubik, and so 
on. Uh, we, we've seen that uh, notwithstanding uh, that 77% of women, 64% of men report support for no-cost contraceptive coverage. Uh, and you probably all saw the, the figures. I think it was in a JAMA report detailing the number of women who applied for long-acting contraception right after the election results uh, were announced in 2016. There's this spike in, in LARC requests. So the interim rules uh, were enjoined in multiple states. It's uh, a sad example of path-dependent health insurance and its reliance on employers are now uh, being further extended into the realm of, of sexual health. But the final rules are far broader, obviously, both religious and moral objections now. The moral exemption made the exemption available to additional entities on the basis of sincerely held moral convictions. And these are things that are objectively unchallengeable, essentially, I think, when a, an employer makes such a decision as that. Obviously, they're all enjoined, both for procedural uh, APA notice and comment reasons and substantive exceeding the authority under the ACA. We've got cases going on in Northern District of California and the Eastern District of Pennsylvania. It is worth noting that there is a very broad swathe of states that do require insurance coverage for contraceptives. Um, however, you have to look at the footnotes, right, and see which of those make it free. And that uh, is a far smaller number than uh, the overall mandate. Quickly moving to states on offense. Um, the big one, of course, has been the public option states. Washington's uh, SB 5526 introducing cascade care, which I thought was a dishwashing thing. <laughs> this is a hybrid public-private system where the state will contract with private health insurers to administer the plans, but will control the terms to manage costs. The estimate of savings is fairly conservative, 5 to 10%. Colorado's, they've just ordered the state agencies to undertake a feasibility study. Connecticut was just a horrible mess. They were moving forward with such a bill, and the insurers, particularly Cigna, resident in Connecticut, said, all right, we're leaving the state if you bring in a public option, which is an interesting approach to developing sound public policy. Uh, so it was abandoned following a threat by Cigna. There are some signs this month of negotiations being explored to, to bring it back, but uh, it's still a mess. Insurance access is kind of interesting. Uh, Maryland, in uh, March 2019, statute crossing over into Medicaid on your tax form, you can note that you would like Medicaid if it's available. And that will automatically trigger a determination of your eligibility and begin the process. And how cool is that, right? Whereas you have so many states who are, and we saw this in the Medicaid expansion particularly, increasing administrative burdens to lessen the roles. Here, we actually go the other way. Will California lead the way? Governor Newsom is committed to single payer, but first, apparently, he wants health care for more, which is his current slogan. So that's a shoring up of the ACA with a mandate, expanded subsidies, and of course, coverage of undocumented persons and so on. And I would wouldn't be surprised if we're here again next year with more and more and more. Thank you. And that was the Week in Health Law. Show notes are at twill.com, where you'll also find links to the slides, not only for this episode, but for the past three episodes that were also recorded during the SEALs conference. I'm at Nicholas Terry on Twitter. Thank you for joining me and have a legally interesting but healthy week.